Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is the anthem of the 2022 FIFA World Cup, which is going to kick off this Sunday. Players from 32 countries and fans from across the globe are going to gather for the most watched sporting event in the world. It comes almost 12 years since this announcement was made in Zurich. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Yeah, absolutely stunning. Uh, I've been doing this job for 20 years, maybe even a bit longer, and, th- and that day will live long in the memory. Tarek Panja is a global sports reporter for The New York Times, and he was in the room that day. An auditorium in Zurich, filled with the great and the good, not just of sport, but of of, um, politics, celebrities. David Beckham was in the room with England. There was uh, Bill Clinton for the US. Morgan Freeman was in the the room. The then president, Sepp Blatter, he loves these moments, these moments to shine on, on the global platform, TV crews from all over the planet, all focused on him. He gets onto the stage again, opens the envelope and says the words, Qatar, and you you can hear this small group of Qataris led by the then Emir, Sheikh Hamad, cheering. And for everyone else, we were just looking at each other, stunned. Qatar winning the bid was shocking for a number of reasons. This is a country that is smaller than Connecticut. It was dangerously hot in June and July, which is the dates this World Cup should have taken place and what Qatar bid for. It had none of the infrastructure or very little of the infrastructure required. So on all levels, it was perhaps the least suitable candidate in World Cup history. It's still unclear how Qatar, a tiny but incredibly wealthy country, pulled this off. The Qataris always denied doing anything illegal or unethical, but there have been tons of allegations of corruption against the bid, like spending designed to influence voting and of outright vote buying. And since that day, holding the World Cup in Qatar has only become more controversial. There have been worries about what it means to host a global event in a country where being LGBTQ plus is a crime. And steady reports of the mistreatment of migrant workers who were brought in to build everything the country needed to host the games, from stadiums to a new transit system. But despite all of that, this is happening. The World Cup is being held in Qatar. And if you're a football fan who cares about human rights, this probably isn't the most straightforward thing to navigate. 
This week on the show, we're going to look at how this World Cup came together from the perspective of migrant workers, as well as some of the other controversies surrounding the event, and what it means that FIFA is already predicted to make more money off of this World Cup than ever before. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. So Tarek, you've been covering the controversy surrounding Qatar as the host since 2010. And one of the major issues that's come up is its treatment of migrant workers. And you've done some reporting on this. You've talked to workers in Nepal. And I wonder if you can tell me what you heard from them about what it was like to work there. They described working conditions that most of us would find almost impossible to work in, particularly in those hot summer months. You're talking working outdoors in temperatures over um, 100 degrees Fahrenheit often. Um, You're you're talking about 10 to 12 hours work a day. You're talking about waking up at 5 a.m., being bused to these places, working six days a week, literally having very little of any life away from your family for a number of years. Uh, being in a dorm, all male dorms for that time, and then earning 300 US dollars per month, which is just remarkable how they have to do it. But these are the circumstances. Since 2010, Qatar has brought in tens of thousands of workers from South and Southeast Asia and Africa to build the infrastructure around the World Cup. Eight stadiums, an airport expansion, a new transit system, multiple hotels, and miles of new roads, all in 12 years, which, if you think about it, is a very short amount of time. Many migrants are now working at these new facilities to keep them running, and they actually make up about 90% of the people living in the country. Ram Pakar Sahani was one of those migrants. Ram and his father, Ganga Sahani, both worked in construction. These days, he works with Human Rights Watch to bring attention to labor rights issues in Qatar. On Thursday, he shared his own story with the media. My father uh, went in 2017, and I also went in 2017. So he was working in different company, and I was in a different company. And every Friday, we used to meet. He was working very well and fine. He was making good money. He was also providing for the family. Ram and his dad were trying to earn enough money to pay back the money they'd borrowed for the recruitment fees to get these jobs. He also had younger sisters. And the reason they weren't got there was to earn money to pay for their weddings. And so when one of the sisters was getting married, they both returned to Nepal. Uh, So I came back uh, as well and... Uh, for the wedding, and I stayed back, and he returned, and he never came back. So the day before he sent, day before his death, he sent two hundred thousand rupees, and the next day, he talked to my mother as well, and in the evening, he was dead, and his friend called me from Qatar, and said that your dad is dead now. I do not know how did he die. He was so seemingly healthy. I could not believe my what I heard. 
Ram asked around and heard that his father had collapsed at a construction site and died in uniform. His death certificate said died of natural causes, heart failure. This meant he couldn't qualify for any kind of compensation. Ram says his father used to complain about his job, about working in the heat. My father's work was very difficult. It was very hot. In May, it is very hot in Qatar. I have been there, I know it. I used to work at maintenance. So, and whenever I get hot, I could go to the AC and then I could rest. But that was not the condition for my father. The death came as a shock. I was uh, surprised. Um, my, I was kind of numb. My body seemed to be paralyzed. I could not speak a word. And uh, the people around him in Qatar and uh, people around me uh, kind of uh, supported me and they kind of uh, motivated me that you could not afford to be weak like this. When your father is dead now, you have to look after your family. So that's how I got uh, support from my family members and other people in my community. Ram's community rallied around him, but he says the Qatari government and the company his father had worked for acted kind of like nothing had happened. After the death, we received nothing. We just received his dead body and the company did not do anything. No compensation, nothing. So it was 9,000 real, that was the salary and bonus. Only, they sent only that money, nothing else on that. All Ram's family got in terms of compensation was an insurance payout from the Nepali government of 2 million rupees, around 25,000 US dollars. Uh, there is no in, uh, debt now, but uh, only it took my father's life uh, to pay back those debt. Last year, The Guardian reported that more than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar since 2010. This is all migrant workers, not just people brought in for the World Cup. The 6,500 number also doesn't include the deaths of workers from places like the Philippines or Kenya, so that number is probably higher. But the official count by Qatari authorities, which they limit to deaths on projects directly linked to the tournament, is 37, with only three classified as workplace accidents. Tarek says that if you zoom in on workers from Nepal, around 2,000 of them have died in Qatar since 2010. The biggest killers have been cardiac arrests and something, this nebulous mm -hmm. phrase, which is described as natural causes. You know, most people connect this to the working conditions and the heat, but no one is doing a proper study on this. There are no autopsies on these bodies either. And as someone in Nepal said to me, one of these government officials, you know, and I pressed him on this, why not, you know, why not, why is this not done? Eventually you get to the number of it. These are the poorest people. Mm -hmm. No one really cares about them enough. Yeah. This makes me think of another aspect of this that I wanted to ask you about. 
a lot of these workers are darker skinned people from Africa and Asia. And I've heard so many stories about the racism that they face in the Gulf. And I wonder, did you get a sense of the racial dynamics at play there in your reporting? It's almost as though they don't see them on themselves, even on an equal footing as human beings with with the, with these people, because the the circumstances of their lives are so extremely different. You're talking about serving some of the wealthiest human beings on the planet, particularly at the higher end of uh, Qatari or Emirati or Saudi society. These are extremely wealthy people served by some of the world's poorest people. And one guy was telling me he couldn't even look these guys in the eye. Wow. You know, and, and it's just so, so extreme. And again, it feels like the commodification of human beings. You know, you're, you're trading, you know, rice, beans, steel and workers Can you elaborate on your point about wealth and talk a bit about the context in which all of this is happening? How would you describe the wealth of Qatar and what would you see if you were to go there? This is a hugely wealthy country based on one basic commodity, which is vast quantities of natural gas. And not only that, it's also blessed by the fact that this natural gas it's very close to the surface, so very inexpensive to extract from the ground. So it's got all of these advantages. Every Qatari citizen is handed over tens of thousands of dollars uh, when they turn 18, for example. Their energy bills are paid for. Their overseas study is paid for. I mean, this is a very, very different way of, of life because you are literally born with a silver spoon or maybe even a gold spoon. Um, that's what we're talking about. You know, if you look at the population as a, as a whole, including the, the, the migrant workers, and that includes white-collar workers, I think, you know, three or four foreigners serve each Qatari. And, and, and that manifests itself on the ground. You see expensive, very expensive sports cars, for example, just very normal. It's not something that you need to um, crane your neck at or, oh, look at that car because there's another one. I did a story on um, a hospital just for falcons because uh, falconeering is a hugely popular pastime there. Um, they spend thousands of dollars on um, not only acquiring these falcons, but on their, on their treatment. I think the treatment of falcons, for example, is perhaps in many ways much better than, than, than migrant workers. I've never even heard of that word, falconeering. Yeah. <laughs> Falconry, it's, it's extremely wow. popular in the Gulf. During racing season in Qatar, competitors come from all over the Middle East to win cars, cash, and the honor of being crowned a champion trainer. So going back to the working conditions, the Qatari government has introduced some labor reforms in the last few years, like a minimum wage and putting a limit on the number of hours that people can work in the heat. But human rights groups say that it hasn't been enough. And why is that? Uh, one word is enforcement. 
You can have all the best rules in the world, but you have to ensure that they're, they're applied. And that has been up and down. That would be the, the, the kind way of saying it, or, or in some cases, non-existent. You know, I'll give you an example. There is a requirement for the employer to pay the visa and transport fees to bring the worker from whichever country they're coming from to Qatar. And the process, I found, goes through many hands and there's a lot of competition. So, for example, there could be, I don't know, a Qatari building company that wants to hire 100 workers. And he's got the choice of Bangladesh, India, Nepal, all of these places to, to recruit from. And in these countries, there are recruitment companies that are now trying to get that business, those 100 jobs. So mm-hmm. what they, what, what's happening is... They're trying to undercut each other, these recruitment companies. Uh, and they'll say to um, a Qatari company, don't worry, we will handle the um, flight and visa costs. We'll swallow that. And that's part of the negotiation. And what I found is, no, they don't. What that tends to happen is the worker ends up paying those costs. And in Nepal, a recruitment fee should be uh, 10,000 Nepali rupees, which is about 75 US dollars that's that's the rule that's the law um almost everyone i spoke to paid at between 25 and 30 times that about two thousand dollars my gosh so again that all the costs that should be borne by a qatari company eventually are borne by um the weakest uh, part of the chain which is the worker and on top of this they have had to raise those fees so two thousand dollars because they're poor by borrowing money locally in Nepal at interest rates that I just had, I was stunned to hear that these numbers, um, between 30 and 36% per year. Wow. So, you know, if something goes wrong, your, your life is even worse than it was before you got that job. And I, I, I met people who were either injured or had family members who died and they're, they're in um, worse debt and that they could lose their land or their homes and have debt collectors knocking on their door. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So we've talked about how wealthy Qatar is, and it doesn't really seem like they need to be in this for the money. In fact, they've spent $200 billion putting on this event. So what does the country get out of hosting the World Cup? This is a political project directed by the very top of the government. Qatar, if you think about 2009, I would guess that you walk down any major high street in any major city in the West and said Qatar, people would look at you quizzically. 13 years later, everyone or many people would would know what Qatar is. For many people, that will be solely 
because it won the right to stage the world's most popular event. So you bought notoriety and awareness immediately by linking yourself to this event. And if you ask the Qataris, they will say it accelerates a nation building program um, in terms of infrastructure that they, they had in mind. And that brings us to another interesting point. In the neighborhood, among all these princes of these various countries, there is also this, I guess, uh, competition as well, right? To be the first. They're all vying with each other for, for attention and clout. But Qatar, the smallest of, or one of the smallest of all those emirates, has got something none of them have ever had, which is a major sporting event. This is the first time the World Cup or the Olympics would have been staged in the Arab world, let alone the Gulf. The Qatari government has had to deal with this backlash for over a decade now. And if you ask them to respond to it, what they say is that they faced a kind of systematic campaign that no other country has had to face and that there's been elements of racism in it, orientalism. With time, we began to see that the accusations were politically motivated and to a significant extent racist. And I wonder what you make of that. Do you think they have a point? Not really. I think there's a, a, an element of deflection there. Um, and um, to be kind, naivete, because we've just said that this is the biggest event on the planet. If you're going to get that attention, you're going to get all the attention. This um, World Cup was born out of allegations of rampant corruption. So from the start, there was this. And then you look at the issues that have followed. We've talked about migrant workers, human rights in relation to the criminalization of homosexuality, climate change. Uh, you know, we, we're just coming out of COP meetings and, and um, worrying headlines about uh, being past the point of no return when it comes to global warming. And here we are going to the desert to have a soccer tournament in an air-conditioned in environment in stadiums that look like they have no real future after a month-long tournament. I think a lot of the criticism is valid, that you could argue, if you were them, why you would be sensitive, because maybe people don't understand your culture very well, and th those arguments and discussions could be had. But the broad swathe of criticism and controversy appears to be justified if you look at the facts. Yeah, I guess the one other question I have is, Qatar is not the only party involved in putting on this World Cup. What, if anything, do you think is missing from the conversation about accountability for the controversies around these games? I'm not sure it, it's missing because there is there is a focus and that, that locus for this uh, criticism is FIFA, the football governing body that delivered this World Cup. It's gone through scandals since, almost um, existential in 2015 when the FBI and the United States Department of Justice unsealed this indictment outlined two decades worth of of corruption. So 
you have to have two parties to the problem. Qatar on its own wouldn't wouldn't be where it is hosting the World Cup were it not for those FIFA members that delivered it. And then on a broader scale, the, there are a slew of Western companies that have benefited and Western economies that have benefited from Qatari largesse. From the beginning, even just just focusing on the World Cup, you can look at the bid. There were Western consultants on the bid, lawyers and public relations teams, and they, they've stayed with them throughout. Major accountancy firms, some of the same people that would be um, talking about human rights when they're with their friends at dinner on a Friday or Saturday night have probably made a lot of money from the same countries that they're criticising. So I guess in the round, when you look at the global economy, this money from the Gulf has to go somewhere, and a lot of it has gone into the pockets of, of Western businesses. So right now, there is a movement to boycott the World Cup. Fan zones are synonymous with the World Cup. But this time around in many French cities, they say there will be no giant screens or mass gatherings. 16 of Australia's best players squarely calling out human rights issues in an uncompromising black and white message. We have learned that the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These issues that we've been talking about, we've been discussing them on and off for 10 years, right? Yet the World Cup is happening and it's set to bring in a lot of money. And I wonder what is your big takeaway from all of this? Like, what does it say about us? And what does it say about the kind of power that FIFA has? It's the World Cup and FIFA owns the World Cup. And that's a very powerful commodity to own. It's, it's a monopoly over the most popular sport entertainment product in the world. It's like selling oxygen. It's not very hard. A lot of people are defined by their love of, of this game. That's extremely seductive and powerful, which is why, sadly, a lot of the issues that are raised about how we live as, as people in the world are brushed aside um, by the, the, this kind of inevitable force of this game. So my guess is once the ball starts rolling after that first opening game between Qatar and Ecuador on Sunday, the conversations about migrant workers, human rights, corruption will quickly dissipate and we will start focusing on or the global conversation will be on how well your team is doing. Mm-hmm. Tarek, thank you so much. This was really, really interesting. I appreciate it. Uh, good to be with you. So before we go today, I'm going to leave you with some words from Ram Pakar Sahani. He's the Nepali migrant worker we heard from earlier in the episode who spent years helping build the stadiums for the World Cup in Qatar. Ram lost his father, who died doing the same work. So what I feel is since World Cup is approaching soon, uh, when the stadium were begin to construct, I was there at the venue. But when the World Cup is there, it's a very happy moment for all players and the audience. Everybody is representing their country and playing for their national pride. 
for us who make the stadium, what I would like to urge to everybody is we all worker who made this stadium possible and made the Qatar beautiful. This is because of our blood and sweat. So our only request is please look after us who are uh, from the poor family. Look after us. See our conditions because there are so many people who have made their huge contribution, even losing their life to make the Qatar's World Cup possible. So please don't leave us as it is where we are. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta, and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.